Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Deborah Howard, founder and president of the Companion Animal Protection Society, or CAPS, self-described as the only national nonprofit organization dedicated exclusively to protecting companion animals from cruelty in pet shops and puppy uh, slash kitten mills. CAPS seeks to mitigate animal suffering through investigations, outreach, legislation, legal advocacy, and other methods. I previously interviewed Howard on Talking Animals in March 2013, and I invited her to return this week to assess CAPS legislative accomplishments and other important inroads in the ensuing decade or so. We'll also discuss ways in which CAPS has broadened its mission over those years, including adding efforts toward reforming shelters in California. CAPS is producing a short documentary, The Crisis at California's Municipal Shelters. For another example, as part of a more concerted endeavor towards national Latino outreach, CAPS has placed spay-neuter PSAs, recorded in Spanish as well as English, on a significant number of Spanish TV and radio stations. We'll aim to get caught up with much of the current CAPS story when I speak with Deborah Howard in a moment here on Talking Animals on WNF. Meanwhile, an announcement that I just want to make sure I don't run out of time for the last couple of weeks I have, and... Um, us to tell you about Raptor Fest, which is happening this Saturday, February 3rd at Boyd Hill Nature Preserve, and um, that spoke, uh, spotlighted Boyd Hill Nature Preserve uh, about three or four Wednesdays ago, and uh, Randy played songs all about raptors and related birds today, so we're trying to call attention to this uh, this great event happening again WNF will be present there. There'll be trained raptors as well as a free flight show, and... Um, Live birds of prey, environmental exhibitors, all kinds of stuff for families and children, and uh, more. So that's it. Uh, Boyd Hill Nature Preserve this Saturday, February 3rd, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Raptor Fest. You can also find out more at raptorfest.org. Meanwhile, coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Chuck O'Neill, veteran environmentalist and advocate. For eight years, he worked closely with Barry Law School's Earth and Environmental Law Clinic to affect change both on the state and local level. We'll fill us in on what's been going on in Tallahassee with this new bear bill, HB 87, called Taking of Bears, which may give you some indication of what we're looking at here. We'll hear some of those details when Chuck joins us a bit later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk the Companion Animal Protection Society with its founder, Deborah Howard, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 813- 239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885 let's welcome Deborah Howard back to Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning Deborah. Good morning Duncan, how are you? I'm really well, thanks for uh, joining us again today on Talking Animals. I'm delighted to be here again. Great. So as I noted in the opening description, you and CAPS operate in a very specific world combating the cruelty inherent to puppy mills and many pet shops. But as also mentioned, CAPS has widened its mission, and I definitely want to explore later in this conversation those those um, broader efforts that uh, you've pursued over the recent years since we last talked. But the core mission you initially carved out remains pretty singular, so I'd kind of like to start there this morning. Sure. And I know we discussed this in our first talk, but because it seemed pretty pivotal to the cap story. Maybe you could recount your visit to that Atlanta pet store some, I guess, three decades ago at this point. Right. November of 89, when I lived in Atlanta, I uh, walked into Dr. Pet Center, one of 300 franchises, and I saw a lot of very sick puppies. And uh, I was really shocked by the conditions at the pet shop, and I decided to find out where the dogs came from. 
found out that they came from puppy milk. And um, at the time, I was doing public relations, um, although I do have a law degree. And I approached 2020 about doing a story. And in May of 1990, uh, we did a story with them um, on Dr. Pet Center. And uh, the following year, I started organizing protests um, all over the United States uh, against Dr. Pet Center. Uh, so the first year was like 30 stores. Um, and then 2020 did a follow-up story the night before. Um, so we've protested them for several years. Um, but by February of, um, I believe it was 92, um, we put them into uh, Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Wow. Through, the, through the yearly protests the weekend before Christmas. And I also generated a story with People Magazine, and then we did just a general story with Life Magazine on some horrible puppy mills in South Dakota. Um, and it was those, those stories plus the 2020 plus the protests that I think was too much for them to survive. And I don't, uh, I guess, recall exactly. Back then, uh, obviously that was the focus of your efforts and all the media exposure and the protests. But back then, what was the, the landscape otherwise like? Uh, I mean, was this kind of characteristic of pet stores at the time, and, and this was just the focus because it had 300 franchises and obviously a huge national presence? Yeah, there were quite a few pet shops at that time. Um, <clears throat> this, was, this was by far and away the largest chain. Yeah. Uh, it was started by a man named Milton Doctor in Pennsylvania, and then three... Um, Graduates of MBA school at Harvard, business, Harvard Business School, um, took over and franchised it. Um, they, they were out of Massachusetts. And then that's when, in the late 70s, early 80s, that's when Dr. Pet Center really began to expand. Wow. Sounds like almost like a weird uh, Harvard MBA uh, <laughs> senior project of some yeah. kind, right? Jeez. I know. So, <laughs> so it, it had expanded to 300 franchises. Um, at that time, and so what we tried to do is find local activist groups to protest the store the weekend before Christmas, because that's the busiest time of year for puppy sales. Um, so I reached out to activists all over the United States, and then in subsequent years, we also did protests in Canada as well. Um, there were there were um, no doctor pet centers up there, but there were some Petland stores, and and then we opened it up. The first year was just doctor pet center, and then we opened it up to any any pet shop selling puppies and kittens. And uh, in subsequent years, we had you know like forty groups in both the U.S. and Canada. So basically, once once it was clear that a that a given operation uh, was selling. Uh, animals from puppy mills, then they were fair game to be protested as well or maybe uh, have publicity efforts uh, directed at them. Yeah, and we, we provided a lot of support to these local um, activist groups. Um, we would ask them to get names of, of breeders from the stores, and we, would, and we had just started you know, using Bob Baker um, to do investigations. He was with the Humane Study United States at that time. He later came on and, and was our investigator and our vice president. So Bob, Bob and I are still very close to this day. He's on our advisory board. He runs Missouri Alliance um, for Legislation. And um, he would investigate the mills, especially with the second story, because with the follow-up story, they were claiming they didn't use puppy mills. At that point, they had a new CEO, and uh, he had this white paper, and they claimed they didn't use puppy mills, and then we proved that they were. So we actually had footage of a lot of these mills to refute their claims that they didn't use the puppy mills. 
Um, and that was even more damaging for them. Yeah. And that story aired the evening before all the protests took place. <laughs> wow. Nice. So would you kind of mark like the line of sort of before and after in a sense of, of when Dr. Pet Center sort of opened and then again, thanks to the Harvard MBA, you know, uh, efforts or whatever, uh, expanded to 300. Cause I sort of think of, uh, you know, some years prior to that, when I was really young, which again was many, many years ago, but I think of pet stop, pet shops as being kind of sleepy ma and pa operations that, uh, you know, probably wouldn't have trafficked in puppy mill stuff, at least that I knew of. And, uh, you know, they had kind of their weird assortment of animals probably that, you know, now would be maybe horrifying some which to, to be able to buy buy those at a pet store. But, I mean, they wouldn't come from a puppy and be more like an exotic, you know, animal of some kind. So those just seem like like almost of different eras, like maybe before and after the Dr. Pet Center revolution kind of. Um. So I don't know. I can't. I don't know exactly what year they incorporated. Um, there's folklore, and I don't know if this is true or not, that USDA after World War II encouraged farmers to go into puppies um, because they had the land. Mm. Um, we, so we've never been able to prove that, but let's say, in fact, that was true. That they went to farmers in the Midwest who had a lot of space and said, "You can you can raise puppies, you know, just like you do your other livestock." Um, and you know, the, how much is that puppy in the window was a big hit in the 1950s. Yeah. So it is true, I think, in the 1950s that there were these mom and pop pet shops. But you know, I I seriously doubt even then they were coming from local breeders. But I I don't know you know the history. I wasn't even born then. So yeah, I know that. I do remember when I was, so I went to New College of Florida in Sarasota. Oh, and I wow. do remember at the mall in Bradenton, there was a pet shop. I think it was a doctor pet center, and that would have been late 70s, early 80s. Wow. Okay. Um, so I do remember a pet shop in that mall. And in fact, I believe that pet shop was still there when we started doing the protests, um, you know, in, in 90, 91, 92, 93, well, they were already bankrupt by 92, but some of them actually still stayed. A couple of the larger franchisees um, stayed in business and changed the name of the store. Um, they're, they're all gone now, too, as well, but it took, it took a while. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm not sure. I, it, I, all I know is it's kind of took place, this franchising took place in the late, mid to late 70s and early 80s. Um, but by the time I, 89 is when I walked into that Dr. Pet Center. So they were really fully established at that point. Right. So given everything that sounds like it probably changed over the course of all your efforts and uh, media things, protests, et cetera, how would you characterize kind of the, your, your current view of pet stores in, in these days? Well, they're still there. Yeah. Um, there's still a lot of them, but what has changed significantly is a lot more people do rescue animals. They, they obtain animals from rescues, from shelters. Um, there's not as much purchasing at, at pet shops, but the landscape has changed because more people are buying online. So when in two, so we started doing a lot of protests, um, also just cats itself doing protests in California, um, for, for several years, um, we were protesting stores and one of the first protests we did was at Elite Puppies in West Hollywood, California, and that was around 2008. 
We also converted four stores in eight months to humane adoption centers. And some of them we protested, um, and they decided, well, we don't want all these protesters in front of our store every week, so we'll just stop selling puppies and offer space to shelters and rescues. Um, But West Hollywood, the elite puppies, Arnold Schwarzenegger had bought a puppy from this store. Um, This store had also um, bought puppies from the Wentzmans. It was a horrible dog and cat mill in Minnesota we had investigated a couple of times. So we had evidence um, that they actually bought from a really bad puppy mill. I don't know if Arnold Schwarzenegger's dog came from the Wentzmans. It's a very good likelihood it did. And how did we know this? He had a pic- they had a picture of him in the store with the puppy he had purchased there. Um, now, I'm, sh- I'm not blaming him because he probably didn't. He's a big animal lover. I mean, he probably had no idea that his dog had come from a puppy mill. Yeah. Um, and we were protesting there every week, and city council members started to come out. And discussions started about what are we going to do about this? Because West Hollywood is an extremely animal-friendly town. So we decided to work on an ordinance to ban the retail sale of dogs, cats, not rabbits at that point, dogs and cats. Um, It wasn't the very first one. The very first one was in Albuquerque in 2006, but it didn't get any publicity. There might have been one pet shop there. I'm not even sure. Um, So this ordinance passed. And uh, I think officially in two, I think we started the work in 2009 and it officially it was enacted in 2010. And it, it, it got so much attention because West Hollywood is known worldwide. Yeah. Um, we were getting calls from Canada. We started helping groups in Canada pass ordinances we'd, and we'd give them information on breeders and brokers we had investigated. That, that was the genesis, that West Hollywood ordinance was a genesis for the entire pet shop ordinance movement we have today. Wow. And subsequent to that, the, we, we did ordinances with Glendale, California, and Los Angeles, which was really big. There were about 30 pet shops in Los Angeles at that time. San Diego, um, w- which we got sued over um, for trying to pass an ordinance. Of course, we won, and we filed an anti-slap um, motion and, re- and received all of our attorney's fees. Um, and so it really took off in California. And then at that point, you know, other groups were asking for help all around the country and in Canada. Um, and we passed, finally passed an ordinance in Sarasota, Florida. It took us five years. Um, and that finally passed in 2016. So between 2010 and 2015, as a result of all these ordinances passing around the country, the number of um, licensed uh, pet, so there's, a license and B license, the B are the brokers and the A are the breeders, although brokers can also license. The number of, of USDA licensed breeders and brokers decreased from 5,000 to 3,000. And that's directly because of all of this ordinance work. Yeah. But it also made it our job a lot harder because some places were only passing regulatory ordinances, meaning the pet shop could sell a puppy if the breeder didn't have X number of violations in so many years. And so um, USDA started helping these breeders not have violations. So then the number of violations that USDA was noting started to decrease. And it also drew a lot of attention to our undercover work. So it became also harder for us to get into facilities as well. Um, because there are were certain municipalities where they couldn't, because of home rule or whatever, they just couldn't pass what's called a retail ban. Um, however, it had quite an impact on the number of licensed facilities. Um, as the number of pet shops started to decrease and more people started rescuing dogs, 
the advent of internet sales started to take place. That I started to see that around, you know, the first case we investigated with internet breeders was around 2010, um, and it's really taken off since then. Yeah. Okay, I might get back into that uh, a little deeper, but uh, I'm going to take a call in a sec. But look, for people who might have just tuned in recently, I just want to let folks know this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Charles. If you did just tune in, my guest is Deborah Howard, founder of the Companion Animal Protection Society, or CAPS, which, uh, again, is a self-described uh, national nonprofit, the only national nonprofit actually dedicated exclusively to protecting companion animals from cruelty in pet shops and uh, puppies and or kitten mills. So, um, but over the years, they've broadened their mission, which we'll get into later in the show. So if you have a question for Deborah, would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So let's, uh, let's take this call right now. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Deborah Howard. Hey, yeah, this is John. I'm calling from Bradenton. Hi, John. Hey, dude, I just wanted to ask you, so there's a pet land in, in Bradenton on 53rd. Yes. Is she, is she saying that all the, the, the dogs that are at that place come from puppy mills? Yeah, I'm very familiar with that, so we've investigated it. We've investigated um, more than half the pet shops in Florida. There's currently around around 70 of them, more than the state of New York, which used to have 100. Uh, yeah, so what? So, so there's actually two pet shops in Bradenton now. There, there's the one um, that's been there all along, and then Sarasota Petland. Um, when we passed that ordinance, um, they they kept selling puppies. Um, we had to work very very closely with the city attorney on the wording of the ordinance and everything. Um, and then they got sued anyway. But we we try to help out. We help a lot of municipalities out because we have a general counsel who's well versed in in commerce law. Um, so eventually the Sarasota Petland also moved into Manatee County. So Manatee County actually has two Petlands now. Um, the one he's probably referring to, the Bradenton one, yes. All of those dogs come from puppy mills. We've investigated that store. Manatee County also passed an ordinance. Uh, that one took us about 10 years. <laughs> um, now, is that, has it been like that forever? Because yes, about 8 or 10 years ago, I bought a dog there for, for my girl and... Yes. We were really, we heard a lot of bad things, like most of the dogs are sick, they come up yes. with this, they come up with that. Yes. We got very lucky, and the yes. dog had no nothing wrong with it, but um, um, I didn't realize that it came from a puppy mill. It's always been like that. I believe they have new owners now. Um, I think both stores may have new owners, but I'm looking right now on our website. Uh, if you go to our website, and um, we have pet shop reports on there, but you can also just look in the search function, Petland Bradenton. Um, we investigated there in 2019. Um, they actually had 40 puppies and four kittens. Um, so, yes, they've always used, in fact, the kitten breeder was Bunny Trembler, <laughs> who had a horrible kitten mill that we investigated uh, in, in Missouri. Um, but, yes, both, both those pet lands that are in Manatee County do, do buy from puppy mills. And, um, super, pet- super expensive. I'm sorry? What was that, John? I, th- I think variety. Can you say it one more time? Sorry, it's a, I think your phone's uh, dropping. Out. I think the the dog was super expensive. I can't remember what it was, yeah. but um, mm-hmm. I think the the variety is what made me mm-hmm. drew me there. You know, even though you can go to a uh, shelter and, and there's quite a few different types of dogs, but you, 
the dog that I wanted was there, and they, you know, so I mean, that maybe was why I went there, and maybe that's well, why they make it convenient. They make too. it very convenient for people, so that's because what happens is a lot of pet shops buy through brokers, the USDA licensed bee dealers, and the bee dealers buy from breeders, a licensed dealers, or sometimes unlicensed um, because they're exempt; they don't have enough dogs. So um, that's what gives you the variety because the brokers pull from a lot of breeders um, in the Midwest. And then right. the other thing that makes it convenient is that there are finance plans. Right, so right, the, right. the puppies are – let me give you an example. We, are, we worked undercover at the Hunt Corporation, which, is, which now is part of Select Puppies. It was the largest brokerage facility. Hunt sold puppies to Petland. It, in fact, it was the primary broker. Chances are your dog was brokered by the Hunt Corporation, which also became known as Choice Puppies. Um, we ha- our, our lead investigator worked at Hunt for six months. We understand exactly how this whole operation works. And they have booking agents, and they bring dogs in from different parts of the Midwest. And um, they, have, they, had a, they had a whole field full of puppies that they had buried. I got an anonymous note from one of the employees. That's what brought us there to work undercover. They were buried. They had about 1,000 puppies buried there. They had violations oh my God. from the state of Missouri for burying puppies there. Um, they had a sick room where they had all these upper respiratory dogs that they tried to get better. Um, they did very cursory veterinary examinations um, before they put the puppies on the truck. And they had these big semi-trucks that would just drive all over the country. They even drove to California and flew puppies. They called them air puppies to Japan. They drove them overland to Mexico from Missouri. They were shipping them to South America. Mrs. Hunt was, was, was from and you know, And you know the people that were moving them we're probably taking care of them all properly that's for you know for yeah sure. that's that's probably true and um you know it's just we saw our investigator saw a lot during his six months there um and that was you know if it isn't hunt corporation there's lots of other big brokers now that you know we've investigated and, and investigated the breeders to sell to them so unfortunately i'm glad your dog's healthy but unfortunately your dog did come from a puppy mill well, I don't, I'm not with her anymore. I don't know if she even has it. I, now, I remember now it was a Springer Spaniel, and you don't mm-hmm. see them too many times at, at um, shelters, you know, and I think that's why I went, went, went to a pet store and bought we one. We recommend that people go to a breed-specific res- rescue. If there's a specific dog um, we ask you to go to, you can find just about any breed rescue now. And there, we also tell people to go to Pet Finder. Yeah, pet I was just going to say. The, the source for finding rescue dogs. Yeah, that sure. people can find specific breeds of all different kinds on Pet Finder. So if you want a German Shepherd or whatever, yes. you go there. Oh, uh, German Spanish. Shepherds are, there's way too many of them. They've been yeah. way overbred. Um, they're dying like crazy in shelters in California. It's really, really tragic. Um, German Shepherds are really easy to find. But if you were looking for a Springer Spaniel, which sounds like the original dog of the nature of this conversation, uh, on well, Pet I'll Finder, let you could... else get, I'll let somebody else get a, get a call in. Okay, John, thank thanks, you thanks for, for your call. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. thanks. Bye. So um, let's uh, actually, uh, while we're still kind of vaguely still talking about Petland, let me read this email that came in. Florida Voices for Animals and other groups have protested at Petland for years and years. It doesn't seem to help much. We write letters and attend commission meetings trying to close them down. One store will close down and open up across the street because it's a different county and they don't have that ordinance. How do you get the whole state, every county, to agree to close them down? Okay, so that was what I was just talking about. Um, yeah. I don't know where this person is, but they're probably referring to that Petland, Sarasota, that moved across the county line, not far from New College, actually, yeah. um, into into Manatee. 
Um, and you know, the one in Bradenton, uh, is still there. So that one, that one's on 153rd Avenue. Um, so what happened in Manatee County, unfortunately, is we did get finally get an ordinance passed there and then new, new commissioners came in and they reversed the ordinance within a year. That ordinance that we had worked 10, 11 years to get passed got reversed. Um, that occasionally does happen. That happened in Las Vegas. Yeah, protesting can be very effective, but it has to be done consistently. We've done a lot of protesting, like I said, in California, New York, Illinois. We had our Illinois, our Chicago team. We have an Illinois director. We have a Chicago outreach coordinator. They protested one store every single day for, for one year. Through, through the hottest days, the coldest days, there'd always be one person at least, and we had a billboard across the street from when we were doing our models against Pet Shots and Puppy Mills outreach campaign. And the billboard was across the street, too, which helped. We prevented so many people from going into Puppy Parlor. But because of that protesting uh, for a year, and I think it was like 150 consecutive days out of that year, that pet shop finally closed. And it was an atrocious pet shop that bought dogs from Dennis Van Wick, who's a horrible breeder in Iowa, who's still around. We investigated him three or four times. Um, unsold puppies were put in the rear back room and just left there, and the state didn't do anything. They do inspections. So it takes it takes tremendous perseverance if you want to shut a store down through protesting, you know, like, yeah. like that, like protesting every day, every single weekend, week in and week out for for a long time. Wow. Um, but the problem in Florida is that I don't think it's ever going to, I would really be surprised if a state law ever passed to ban the retail sale of dogs and cats. Um, the legislature is not amenable to it. Um, they tried to pass preemption bills to prevent municipalities from passing ordinances because quite a few ordinances have passed in the yeah. state of Florida. Um, we are, we've been trying to get an ordinance passed in Miami-Dade. We investigated all 27 pet shops in the county of Miami. There's now 23. That's a lot for one county. For sure. um, Mayor um, Cava Levine is, it was behind the ordinance. She was the commissioner then. Um, we haven't been able to get any traction. There are some animal-friendly legislators, but a lot of them are pro-business. Mm. Um, we investigated every pet shop in Orlando, in Orange County, and ordinance did pass there. Um, we've been to Collier County, Lee County, Broward County, Palm Beach County, and when we go there, we go to every single pet shop. Wow. Manatee and Sarasota, of course. So now we're going to try to be working on uh, trying to get ordinances passed in Broward County and Palm Beach County. Um, we're working on the reports, um, and we'll have the videos out really soon. Sounds uh, sounds super intense and thorough, but that sounds like that's the only way to really get anything done to be anything less thorough, I guess, would, would leave yourself open to. Uh... And, and it's what we try to tell business-friendly legislators is <clears throat> this is not just about the animals. Yes, it's horrible. The dogs come from puppy mills. It is about consumer fraud. We have an online complaint form. So if you bought a puppy online, come to our website and fill out the complaint form. Um, People are are lied to. There's misrepresentations about where the dogs came from. Um, they're, they're USDA licensed breeders. That is a puppy mill. When they tell you that, that is a puppy mill, a USDA licensed facility. So, um, you know, they make it sound like, you know, that they check out all these places, that the mothers are bred every five years and then they go live in some wonderful home. Yes, there are rescues that take dogs from puppy mills. 
but it it is not it is it is not consistent throughout. I mean, here and there. Yeah. So this is about people being taken advantage of. We get a lot of young couples who haven't had um, children yet that go in and get puppies. We have people whose dogs just died. A lot of times these people are not planning to buy a puppy that day. And they go by and they see the pup, literally see the puppy in the window at the mall, at the shopping center. And they go in and they, they have a whole marketing plan to get you to buy that puppy. They put that puppy in your arms. Um, and then before you know it, you've bought the puppy and you have a financing plan that has exorbitant interest rates. Wow. <laughs> um, people are shocked, you know, that they're going to end up, the puppy that costs $2,000 is going to end up costing, you know, five or $6,000 by the time it's said and done. And some of these, these financing plans, you actually didn't even own the dog. You were leasing the dog. Uh, we worked with the New York Attorney General on that. And Illinois now pro- prohibits um, the financing of, of dogs and cats, even though they, ha- they finally passed a, a state retail ban there. So that's, that's what happens. People are taken advantage of. And then a lot of these people, the puppies get really sick. And maybe the state has a lemon law. Florida doesn't. You get a sick puppy in Florida, you're out of luck. Uh, some other state, you know, you like New Jersey, you buy a sick puppy, you can get up to two times the price of the puppy for reimbursement for your vet bill. But that's really just a Band-Aid because some people end up spending many, many thousands of dollars to save their dog, and a lot of the dogs end up dying. Uh. All right, well, let's get caught up on a few things here. Uh, again, this is Talking Animals on WNF from Duncan's Trust. My guest is Deborah Howard, founder of the Companion Animal Protection Society. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. And one uh, kudo that came in for you that I thought I should read says, Duncan, blessings and thanks to your amazing guest, Deborah Howard, in all caps, a true American uh, heroine. She has changed the world, and we're all better because of her work. So that's from Jeannie in Sarasota. <laughs> that's really nice. I wonder who said that. It was one of our people. <laughs> well, either way, it's a, it's a nice <laughs> thumbs up. And uh, and I'm going to take this call, uh, but then afterwards, depending on where we get with this call, it occurs to me that just uh, for the benefit of everyone listening, given that there may be just varying de- degrees of familiarity with puppy mills, that we should really go remedial here and have you to tell me exactly what a puppy mill is. But let's first take this call and then come back to Yeah. That. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Deborah Howard. Hi, uh, this is Joe from Clearwater. Hi. Uh, a number of years ago, must have been 30, 40 years ago, um, my ex and I bought a dog from a it was a puppy mill dog. Uh, showed that it was kind of sick, and we took him to a vet. And this was uh, like the next day, and uh, he told me uh, he told us both that yeah, this is a puppy mill a dog, and he looked he looked terrible. You know, he he really he wasn't in good shape. And uh, the vet said it'd be nothing but heartbreak unless you know we uh, you know took the dog back, which we did. But. Uh, we grew attached to it in that short amount of time, and I still remember it all these years later. You know, oh. it's, uh, it's a heartbreak, a real heartbreaker. It's a, <sighs> there's a lot more to it than just the money. You know? That's exactly right. That's yes. exactly right. And by the way, we've investigated all the pet shops in Pinellas County, too, and, and Hillsborough. Um, we've had billboards. We had billboards in, in, in Tampa, too, um, next mm-hmm. near. It, it used to be Puppy Town in Sarasota, um, but it's. Um, um, Oh, God, I'm getting, I'm forgetting the names now because there's so many pet shops up there. But um, 
That is the problem, especially when there's no lemon law and there's no reimbursement for your vet bills. Um, a lot of times people have no choice but to return that puppy. They can't afford the vet bills. And then, sadly, um, that store, if the dog isn't too sick, um, may, may be resold to another unsuspecting customer or it's sent back to the puppy mill. Uh, um, yeah. And the dog may end up dying or or it's sent back to the breeder. And if the dog survives, it's turned into breeding. The dog is turned into breeding stock. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's a bad reality. And people, that is what they're counting on. They're counting on your attachment. Yeah. You know? yeah. But they treat it like you're buying an inanimate object. Like you're going in there mm-hmm. and you're just buying a piece of furniture or something. That's what yeah. they, you know, but it, we, we all know that's not true, right? Everybody gets attached. And that's why you purchase that animal. You you put the animal in your arms, and then you're automatically attached to that that dog or cat. I'm sorry uh-huh. that happened to you. It's, yeah, we hear this story over and over again. It's very very sad. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know the healthiest dogs, I guess, are mutts, and they at, in my lifetime, my best dogs have been you know mixed breeds. They're the healthiest, and they seem to I don't know they they work out great for me. Yeah. Right. Anyway, Back to adopt, don't for, shop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for what you do. That's great. Thank you. Thanks for your call. I'll, let you, I'll let somebody else get on the line. Thank Thanks you again. Appreciate okay. It. So, uh, so let's uh, got a couple other things here I want to respond to by way of email. But let's let's just take a moment. Just, I'm sure it's evident to people, and some people are all too familiar with puppy mills. But just for those who are somewhere in between, let, maybe you could just take a moment and just describe what a puppy mill is and how it works. Sure. Um, so we define them as a commercial breeding establishment that mass produces uh, animals for resale. Um, but, you know, of course, now it isn't necessarily resale. They're also selling online. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a filthy, disgusting facility, although a lot of times the animals, you know, are living in squalor. Um, we've been in some facilities that are that are very clean. What I, I t- tell people is that these dogs and cats are being raised in livestock conditions. That That's the difference here. They, they're not being bred in somebody's home uh, inside. You know, they're, they're in, they're in um, commercial. It's a commercial type operation. So it could be clean, but the dogs, you know, they're not running around free in the yard the way Petland has these videos showing you Amish children playing with the dogs in these big fields. Yeah, that's set up like that for the video. But most of the time, the dogs are in runs. They're in sundowner kennels, which are those stacked kennels with just indoor outdoor access. And we see a lot of um, behavioral issues as a result of animals being confined. There's, you know, they turn in circles and they bite their tails. And um, it causes a lot of um, emotional and psychological problems from confinement and not having regular access to exercise. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the female dogs are typically bred on every heat. Um, and then when they, they can't produce large enough litters, um, they're, they're either destroyed or sometimes they're given to rescues. But we rescued, you know, dogs during investigations that were used for many years for breeding and had serious emotional problems or serious medical issues. Wow. Okay, so let's, uh, there's... Uh 
emails of various kinds are coming in fast and furious. One, uh, uh, I thought I should read this, says, this is a great topic today and an excellent guest. I am a New College alum and used to work at New College Alumni Association. I was very pleased that Deborah is continuing her good work, and I remember her well when I worked at New NC from 2001 to 2005. So people that know you are giving kudos, and here's another one. the, the, The subject line just says, best guest. And then inside it just says, thank you for your work and for educating us all. So, um, Oh, that's lovely. Uh, who's the new college person? <laughs> uh, that's actually a uh, someone who's on the air here at the station, David Bryant. Oh, okay. Hi to David Bryant. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, it's, it's old home week. But, uh, so uh, here's another email saying, are there still any active mall-based pet shops in Florida? I remember Dr. Pet stores at malls in the 1980s, so they may have just tuned in a bit late, but uh, uh, I guess... Yeah, as, we, as I mentioned early on in the show, we put them into bankruptcy, the, the Dr. Pet yeah. Center chain. Um, there are, I don't, uh, there may be um, pet shops in, in malls in Florida, because we haven't, again, we've been to maybe, uh, you know, 40 pet shops in Florida out of the 70 that are currently there. Um, but... A lot of them now are in, including Petland, they're in shopping strips, not necessarily in malls. Okay. Um, yeah. So, because malls aren't that popular anymore, right? I mean, a lot of people don't go to malls anymore. So I think actually it's more advantageous if you're a pet shop to be in the shopping center. Yeah. Or maybe a strip mall to kind of come Yeah, a strip mall, exactly. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And also I should mention, just because you mentioned a couple of times, that the Companion Animal Protection Society's website is caps, C-A-P-S, hyphen, web.org. Caps, hyphen, web.org for all kinds of information that that was alluded to and other great information as well. So, um, and speaking of that, one of the emails earlier said, have you enlisted social media to help? On which platforms, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, we're on Facebook. It's under Companion Animal Protection Society. Um, and on Instagram, uh, caps underscore web. Um, and you can find these links also on our website, caps-web.org. We're also on TikTok. I believe it's caps underscore web. We're not, we're not on Twitter, X, um, by choice. Uh, we used to be. Um, we are also on Vimeo. We're on YouTube. Um, you can find all these links on our website, caps-web.org. So we do a tremendous amount of um, social media as well. And then we ask if people are interested, they can go to our website and find, they can subscribe um, to get our action alerts and our newsletters. And it can also presumably go to the website to uh, donate if you're so inclined, correct? Yes, we uh, we absolutely, we never have enough funding. It's yeah. a, a, a source of tremendous stress me every year i'm sure well, um, well your we efforts to, are so back programs last year as a result of um of insufficient funding which i hate to do i want to be able to do everything that we need to do every yeah. year so donations are really welcome monthly donations are even more welcome because that's a consistent form okay of support for us because one of these newer emails that came in says does this organization take donations would like to donate to deborah's org so that's from michelle um so Absolutely, again, yes. You, we take we take all kinds of credit cards, PayPal. You just go to caps-web.org, and you'll see the donate button, and you can go there. Um, and and we would really appreciate any kind of donations. 
All right, so Deborah, I'm sad to say we're nearing the end of our time, and I want to at least switch gears a little bit before sure. we do run out of time. So, I can always come back, Duncan, because we, yeah. we haven't. It's, we're catching up after 11 years. So. Right? No, that's true. <laughs> we we have to do this more frequently for sure. So, because uh, one of the things I was going to touch on, but we'll we'll leave it aside for now. Maybe the next time that that whole SPCA Tampa Bay yes, debacle yes, that, that we yes. touched on by email. But we that, can do, we, we can, can talk hold, about hold. that. Yes. Um, can we but, talk briefly about what we're doing in California? And that's exactly what I, I just yeah. want to know what the impetus for, for CAPS movement to shelter reform in California. That's exactly what I wanted to. And I'd love to do another show just on that um, once we make our documentary. So after I am a native of Los Angeles, I had been away for many years um, and I moved back here three years ago. We thought this was a better place for the nonprofit. It's more animal friendly. We were in Massachusetts for 14 years before that. Um, so the nonprofits always moved with me wherever I was. So um, I went to Kern County Animal Services uh, to save a dog. And I was horrified when I, it's in Bakersfield, California, in the Central Valley. I was horrified that all, I heard all this barking. And these dogs were living in metal warehouses. Mm. So this dog um, needed a companion because she's very, very hyper. Um, and I pulled another dog from there that had had an upper respiratory infection. Um, and I, I went, I saw inside. So the dogs have no access to the outside. And we started videotaping the dogs. I was the first one to do it. And we have our video producer put the videos together and we started putting the dogs on social media. Um, we, we actually pay for advertising and Instagram since we, we, we want it to be widely seen all over California. And we created a pet finder page for these dogs at Kern County Animal Services. Um, we also did some shelter-to-shelter -shelter transfers, and we trans moved dogs up to Canada to a rescue. Through all of that, we also have people who've adopted two dogs each in Washington who are doing next-door posts to save dogs. So because of all those efforts, um, in less than two years, we've saved 218 dogs from Kern County Animal Services. Wow, that's so great. We're not a, you know, because we're not a rescue per se, although we have rescued dogs um, during puppy mill and even cats during puppy yeah. mill and, and kitten milling investigations. Um, so... Then I started to talk to other people um, that, that rescue and, and are volunteers for other shelters um, and started seeing images coming out of shelters like LA Animal Services. Um, we have somebody who's videotaped all of their six locations, and it's horrifying. There are decent municipal shelters. Um, most of them tend to be in the Bay Area. There's a lot more funding given to shelters up there. Yeah. Um, but there's, the Central Valley shelters, are de most of them are deplorable. Southern California, mo a lot of them are, even the ones that are really well-funded, like Orange County, are not well-run, and animals are dying as a result. They don't have, they have appointment only and so forth. Mm. So we are making a documentary. The trailer's on our website, The Crisis at California's Municipal Shelters. We are going to use that documentary to try to get state oversight so that there would be a licensing and inspection program and a set of reg strict regulations that follow the Association of Shelter Vet Guidelines. It's going to be based on the law that was recently enacted in New York that has three years to, for the shelters and rescues to come into compliance. This is only going to be for municipal shelters initially. Yeah, We're also dealing with the abandoned dog situation, which is very serious in the Central Valley of California. There's horrible animal cruelty and no investigation of it. Wow. Um, I'm working on that right now just for Kern County to try to get training for animal control officers and get an animal cruelty task force set up there. Um, so that, that's what we're working on with the shelter reform. And, okay. and if we are successful here, we'll move to other places like Texas, um, where they also have a, a very 
serious shelter issue. We do a lot of, we're doing a lot of investigating in Texas right now for uh, a law, and we've investigated a number of unlicensed facilities there. Okay, Deborah, um, so that's so, what we're doing in California. Yeah, and we can talk more about our other, you know, work at another time because we're also reaching out to Latino, the right, Latino that was, population with spay neuter outreach and so, so forth. So we have yeah. plenty to talk about in in the next uh, visit. <laughs> I know so. we do we do a tremendous amount of work. We're also going to be investigating in Michigan this year for an, um, a state law, a retail yeah. ban law there as well. All right, so we will definitely uh, uh, reconvene on, on these and other things next time. So this has been Deborah Howard from the Companion Animal Protection Society. One more time, the website is caps, C-A-P-S hyphen web.org, caps hyphen web.org to find out more, to donate, to do whatever you'd like to do to some of the, uh, find out more. Yeah, we greatly appreciate anybody's support. We have, we have a lot on our, on our plate for this year. Yeah. Um, we're also coming out with a documentary about um, online puppy sales. That will be coming out very soon. Great. Plenty to do, plenty to talk about. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thank you again for having us, Duncan. So we need to make this regular thing, not every 11 years. <laughs> okay. It was really more frequently than every 11 years, that's for sure. All right. Thanks, right. Deborah. Thank you so much. Thank thanks you. Thanks for all the calls. Thank you. Bye-bye. In a moment, I'll talk with Chuck O'Neill, the veteran environmentalist and advocate who was in the thick of things in Tallahassee, and they were hearing public comments about this bear bill, HB 87, called Taking of Bears, and the amendments added to the bill just in the last couple of days or so. We'll hear that conversation with Chuck and Neil in just a moment right here. Talking animals and diving up right now that we're going to step into the comedy corner with Nick Kroll and the piece pitting canines against felines. This is Cats vs. Dogs from Nick Kroll on today's comedy corner. Talking animals and diving up. I really want to get into it tonight, okay? So, cats or dogs, guys? Cats? Anybody say cats? Cats? The girl that looks like she likes cats likes cats? Well, just so you know, uh, you're wrong. Cats are the worst. I hate cats. They are so cold and indifferent. Like a dog will bring you a newspaper, according to cartoons that I watch. Cat will be like, oh. Oh, you wanted a newspaper? Oh, I thought you wanted this decapitated rat carcass. I have never seen a blind person with a cat before. I've seen a whole lot of dogs with them. Blind person's like, hey dog, let's go to the library. Dog's like, you got it! I don't care that you're blind, you want to go to the library? Let's do this! It's like, how do you know where the library is? Google Maps, bro! <laughs> Cat's like, oh, you wanted to go to the library? Oh, I thought you wanted to hang out under this radiator for six hours. <laughs> They're so passive-aggressive. Cats are so passive-aggressive. I'm going to sit on this windowsill for three days because of something you may have done. What'd I do to you, cat? Oh, I don't know. Somebody might have put tuna fish on top of the milk and not the milk on top of the tuna fish. Like some weird trait of a Gary Oldman villain. That was Nick Kroll in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Cats vs. Dogs, taken from his album. Thank you. Very cool. 
Now it's time to speak with Chuck O'Neill for an overview of the Bear Bill HB87 taking of bears and what's been happening the last few days in Tallahassee. This is Chuck O'Neill here on Talking Animals on WN. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Duncan. How are you? I'm very well. I appreciate you joining us today on Talking Animals to uh, kind of give us the uh, the lowdown. So can you kind of outline what this bill seeks to accomplish initially? Yes, initially it started out as a bill to uh, create an exemption for people who were threatened by a bear so that they could shoot and kill a bear in self-defense. Um, yesterday, though, in committee, there was an amendment approved that expands the scope of this such that it's not just if you're threatened, but also if you're a threat, uh, your pet is threatened or your dwelling is threatened. Yeah, I, I got to watch some of the uh, the hearing uh, just uh, on the video feed, and um, seemed like there was quite a quite an array of uh, comments. But a lot of the comments, at least while I was watching, maybe I was in a typical sampling, uh, were opposed to the bill. And yet, uh, spoiler alert, the uh, the vote was uh, uh, you know passed it uh, pretty handily in the committee. Yes, uh, they have consistently not listened to the public. Uh, the public in each of the committee stops, and this is the fifth one. There are six total through both houses. Um, almost without exception, 75 to 80% of the public comments are opposed to the bill, and yet the bill passes. Um, I think this has uh, become kind of uh, routine at this point where they allow us to speak, but then they don't listen to us. The The other thing about this amendment was in the original bill, there was a prohibition uh, that said that you couldn't lure a bear with food or attractants for an illegal purpose, including but not limited to training dogs to hunt bears. So they took that out and put in where you could shoot a bear if it threatened your dog. So uh, the, the other thing that they, that was in there before is this had to be in your private property. They took that out. So basically you could be with your hunting dogs in the woods and they go after a bear and the bear swats at the dog. You can shoot the bear. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like it just got looser and looser as these amendments kept getting uh, added. Yes. Yes, and it, it, same thing happened on the the Senate side. Um, you know, it, it's it's getting. Uh, you know, we don't know what the final bill would look like because it's got to go through this one final stop in the Senate, and then it's going to go through a uh, conference committee. But the the general direction that these amendments have gone is to make it looser and looser and yeah. uh, enable people to shoot bears for you know, uh, a, a number of different reasons. Yeah, I mean, just the way it seemed to be going based on the testimony, which didn't add up to what the result was yesterday, as we've already noted. Um, but the people that were certainly pro-bill uh, made their case for all these kind of exceptions. And then to me, it just seems like this is likely to lead to a lot of dead bears. Uh, it is. I mean, we have 22 million people or more in this state and only about 4,000 bears. 
So what this is, is it's basically authorizing um, a year-round hunt where people can say, well, I was walking to the woods, I saw a bear, I, I felt threatened, and therefore I shot the bear. And uh, that is just not the way um, the voters intended for wildlife issues to be handled back yeah. in 1998. We that's why we created an FWC so that the legislature would not be in charge of it. Yeah. No, it seems like there's uh, the way this is going and the way it's apparently likely to, to, to end up. seems like there's a high quotient of baloney uh, involved. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's uh, um, yesterday the, uh, the bill sponsor was talking about what we're, what we're seeking to do here is to stop these crack bears yeah. from breaking into houses. Crack bears. Um, I mean, I, I maybe I tuned in late on the feed, but I thought, okay, this 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 seems like a like some kind of weird sketch or or comedy piece. I mean, crack bears, really? Yeah. If you know, if if the consequences weren't so serious, it would be a comedy. Yeah. But you know, the the other thing is. The, the people on the committees that are making these votes, they're making these votes based on very scant information, that some of which is true, some of which is not true. Um, the, the thing that really concerns me the most is the fact that if you do it through a legislature and they pass a bill and they make it way too easy to shoot a bear yeah. and we start losing bears left and right, they can't come back until 2025 to change this, right. to repeal this bill. So how many bears are we going to lose between now and then? Well, with that in mind, uh, Chuck, before we run out of time, let me ask you, what, what can people that are listening do to kind of register their objection and see if, if there's any way to uh, head this off in, in any way? At this point, the way it's, it's headed, Duncan, I would say the best thing to do is to call the governor's office okay. and and ask him to veto HB 87, the bear bill. Right. Um, this, this I think, is our best bet at stopping this, is at the governor's desk. He has the pen. He has the veto power. He could, he could kill this bill instead of us killing bears. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it right there, Chuck. But thank you so much for your help and your input and your time today. And uh, we'll hope people will do just that. Thank you again. We'll probably follow up with you later down the road. Thank you. Thanks, Pleasure Chuck. to speak with you. Thank you. 88.5 WMNF Tampa. We'll be back next Wednesday at 11 a.m. NPR News next and then Slice of Life.